Five, if you'll back up, maybe you close your Bible. So we're going to take a look at the passage that Dennis read for us just a few moments ago. You know, we just sang a song where it said that uh, looking for the day uh, when uh, we would have our reward, when uh, the, what would seem very difficult uh, today would seem as nothing when the Lord returns, uh, that one of the lines in that song was that uh, there's coming a day when that which was so mysterious would be bright and clear as the day. And I thought about that as we sang that song, that uh, it's probably always been that that was one of the real, um, and it continues to be uh, one, of, one, one of the real uh, hopes of the Christian, uh, is that there are things that we don't understand, and maybe that we scratch our heads about, or that are mysterious to us, that when the Lord returns, that uh, those things will be made clear. And that, uh, th- that's certainly, I think, a thrilling thing to, to contemplate, and for the people of the first century, even the times when Jesus was on the earth, uh, things about the kingdom of God surely must have would fall into that category. That there were things about the kingdom that people wondered about and maybe seemed mysterious and, all, and hidden as well. That even after the, the apostolic message began to be preached, that there were still uh, the elements about the kingdom that maybe were misunderstood. And that translates into today as well. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the kingdom of God. I believe there are many people in religion who think they pretty much have a handle on what the Bible teaches, who, uh, who fail to understand the nature of the kingdom uh, or to make the connections the Bible makes about uh, the Lord's people through the ages and even today uh, in the kingdom of God. That having been said, it shouldn't surprise us then that Jesus would introduce some of his simplest teachings uh, with that very phrase in mind. Uh, so there are a number of parables of Jesus where he introduces the kingdom by introduce the parable by saying the kingdom of God is like this, um, and the kingdom of God is like leaven, which a woman uh, took and hid three measures of meal until it was leaven. The kingdom of God is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys it. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who seeks beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had. And bought it. We study those those simple parables. Those are just single line parables, and we recognize that there is a great deal to be understood about the kingdom of God, and uh, even in those short stories, uh, the analogies then, as powerful as they are and as simple as they are, extend through many of the parables of Jesus, where he takes something that's physical and he connects that they understood and connects it to something that they don't fully understand, and that's helpful to us today when we come to places like Matthew chapter twenty-five. Uh, and Jesus teaches a parable about individuals who are made stewards of that which does not belong to them. And we generally call this the parable of the talents. And I want to take a couple minutes and look at the parable of the talents. One reason I thought this would be a good study is because in Luke, in our study in Luke, we just studied the parable of the minas. And we said at the beginning of that study last Wednesday that this parable is very similar to that. In fact, there are some who say suggest it's simply a rete- that this is simply a retelling of what he told in Luke chapter 19. We mentioned at that time, at least from my perspective, that, uh, that, these, that there were too many differences for it to be exactly the same parable, but certainly there are, there are some very striking similarities. We also studied uh, in our study last Sunday evening from Ezekiel 33 about personal responsibility. Uh, and that's really what's involved here as well, is it not? That uh, in both the parable of the minas and also in this parable, one of, the, one of the striking key lessons here is that Jesus is talking about individuals being given responsibility and the consequences of whether or not they will uh, be responsible to what God's provided. So a study of this kind of fits into where we've, uh, where we've looked at before. 
Uh, and we're not going to read it again since Dennis just read it for us as well. Uh, we'll go through and maybe try to put, put together some things um, of the parable and make some applications, and that'll be our task for this evening. Uh, when we think about the parable of the talents, we recognize that this is a story. Uh, and just as, G- just as all of Jesus' parables are, that has several elements to it. Uh, and in interpreting parables, sometimes we have to be careful that we don't speculate too much on trying to assign a meaning to every particular element of the parable. I think that some, most times leads to a misunderstanding of the parable. But we do have to put together the story, because understanding the story is, uh, is the avenue by which we can see the meaning. Uh, and so at verse 14, as Jesus begins the story, he said that a master called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. Uh, the New American Standard Version says he entrusted his possessions to these servants. Uh, now that's a working definition of stewardship as we understand it. And there are several Jesus parables that, uh, that focus on this aspect of stewardship. It's the perfect foundation and environment in which to teach personal responsibility. We may not have a lot of association with the aspect of stewardship uh, as much in our culture today maybe as it was in the first century because we don't have servants and none of us have servants. So when these servant analogies come up, we have to sort of put them in the context of the mind of those who uh, were more familiar with them. But certainly we understand what uh, responsibility is and we understand about what it means for someone to be put in charge or to be put in a position where he has to superintend on something and then give an account. There are very few secular jobs, unless you're the boss's boss, that that doesn't come to mind. And even those who are at the top of the ladder are no doubt accountable to someone, and they're given responsibilities to which that accountability then uh, becomes very important. And so in this, in this familiar story, these servants then are given things. They are given possessions that belong to the master, and yet they are to do things with them. They're not just to possess them themselves because they don't, well, they won't, they don't ever belong to them. But the responsibility, as the, as the master points out, is that uh, you use these things in order to bring a profit to the master. In verse 15, uh, it says there, it's in, in the specific reference of the story, that to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each one according to his ability. So as we look into the story then, we're faced again with a, a definition that we need to be able to, uh, to, def- to define and to understand, and that is the aspect of a talent. He gave him possessions, it said, but he also specifically says that he gave him talents, five to one, two to one, and then one to another. In Jesus' parable, talents then have, is different than the English use of that term. Interestingly, they're connected together. When we think of talents, we're going to have a talent show. We mean we're, everybody's going to come and they're going to show that they can sing or they can dance or they can recite a poem or something that they can do. Uh, so a talent has to do with an ability. It primarily usually has, a, has to do with an ability that distinguishes an individual. So we say this person has a talent uh, for music or has a talent for art. And that's a proper definition of the word. The reason I say it's connected is because, at least from my understanding, the English word talent uh, that's used even here in these translations arrived in our language, in our vocabulary, through this very parable. Uh, that the original Greek word uh, meant to, uh, had to do not with the aspect of uh, an ability, but rather it was a measure of weight. So a talent was something similar to what we would say a pound or a ton. It was measured uh, when you weigh something, it would weigh so many talents. It's first mentioned in the book of Exodus in connection with the building of the tabernacle, Exodus chapter 38. And there again, even in the Old Testament, uh, the, the idea of a talent was a weight. 
What it came to be then was the talent was used to measure currency. So currency was made out of certain types of metal. Maybe it was gold or silver or brass. So you measured that uh, into a certain measure, and that was a talent of gold or a talent of silver. Coined that way then, a talent came to be this aspect of, a, of, a, of a, the coin itself. Now, it came into the English language because of the teaching of this parable, because the application of the parable of Jesus was that God has given us not money, but he's given us abilities. And so with those abilities come responsibilities. So the term talent came to be used to talk about uh, the aspect of ability and even to be defined that way from its association with Jesus' parables and the religious teaching that surrounded it. When we think about this aspect of a, ta- of a talent, then we recognize that uh, in terms of a being a, a, a money, uh, an actual, the aspect of a weighing something out, that there might be ability for us to translate that into our own currency. When we think about money, we think about worth, right? Money, a penny, a dollar, a uh, hundred dollars. How much did he give them? Well, a talent was about 75 pounds in weight. Now, depending on what you made, what, was, what it was made of would depend upon its worth. Uh, but it was, it, it was a heavy thing in terms of 75 pounds. Think of uh, in 2 Samuel, Samuel 12, it talks about King David putting on uh, the king of Rabbah's crown and it weighed a talent. It was a talent of gold. 75 pounds of gold. You think that thing was kind of heavy on his head? Uh, maybe that's why he didn't want to wear it very long. But the idea here um, of the, the value of a talent is, is most money uh, and currency in biblical times. It's very difficult to translate that uh, into uh, into money today. Uh, one reason, because we don't know what it, was, what it was made of in terms of the story, what Jesus maybe had in mind. Uh, the figure sometimes people throw out there is a, that a talent of gold was a, at that time was about $600,000 worth of money at the time an individual might be making that assessment or that, uh, that connection. What we do, and that's quite a bit, and I think that's the, that's the reason I mentioned this, because when we read when we read the parable, we might be thinking that Jesus just gave them a coin, like a penny, you know, and go make another penny with it. Uh, but what, the, what this would have meant to the audience, and Jesus told the parable when he said they gave him a talent, is they gave him quite a bit of money. That it was an enorm- a, 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 a very formidable responsibility for them uh, to be in charge of this much money. If the talent was $600,000, if we use that particular uh, translation, then this first guy was given $3 million. Take it and do something with it. Um, and then the other guy was given, given over a little over a million. But even the guy who got one talent was given, you see, no small amount in order for him to be able to use it. Now, in verse 15, he says there that the master gave the servants ta- the, the talents to each according to his own ability. What's interesting in terms of one thing that's interesting about that particular passage is that we just define talent as an ability in terms of the application and then he says that he gave it to, gave it to them according to their ability. That tells us right there that he's not talking about ability in the original. He's talking about talent as an actual worth of currency. But it's important for us to understand the word there is not the same. It's the word dunamis, uh, which is in the original language is a word that's many times translated power or sometimes authority. And that's really the, the gist of that particular phrase. That the master gave the servant differing amounts of money or worth according to their ability, according to their power to use it. So that tells us here that not only does the master sovereign over what he gives, but he's also, you see, cognizant of the person's ability to use it. So that he would give somebody five talents if they had more ability to use it than a person he gave one talent who had less ability, or dunamis, 
to use that particular talent. So it has to do with capability. So Jesus is putting together in this the aspect of uh, the sovereignty of God, the giving of gifts, the graciousness of God, connected with the capability of the individual to use those gifts or those resources. Now the other element of the story, of course, is that there is an accounting. Think about Jesus' parables. How many times does he tell a parable where he sets the stage in the parable for the coming of a judgment? That something happens here, but it's looking forward to a time when somebody's going to be held responsible for that. We saw that in the parable of the minute. We see that in this parable. We see that in the parable of the, uh, of the wise virgins, of the wise and foolish virgins. Uh, and several other parables that have to do with the idea of the coming of a, uh, uh, of a judgment. And that's what verse 9 points, 19 points up to us. But after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled the council with I would surmise that they understood that was so. It was seen from certainly from what the fellow says at the end that he knew that the Lord was going to, that this Lord was going to hold him accountable for that. But this is the heart of the parable that there would be an accountability and there would be a reckoning, there would be a judgment. But it clearly defines, I think, the context of all that happens after this in the sense of uh, the uh, assessment of what the person's responsibility was. So not only does the parable tell us that there was coming a judgment, we see what happens afterwards or the results of whether or not they use their talents. But in the context of telling us about the judgment, we have a, we have a greater understanding of what their responsibility really was in the beginning. Uh, that's something about judgment I think that some folks need to contemplate is that uh, what does God expect of you? Uh, what does he want from you? Uh, what will he hold you accountable for? We might mull about that and discuss that and talk about that and even search honestly for answers about that. But there's one day when we'll absolutely know the answer to that question. And that's when God comes back and Jesus judges the world. And we need discussion about whether or not God was really going to hold us accountable or whether or not this was really important or not so important. And so the parable is about personal accountability. And that fits the context overall. Uh, at, the, at the end of Matthew 25, Jesus describes the good servant as one who's coming back now, uh, who, know, who understands that the, 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 the Lord is coming back soon. The unworthy servant or the unfaithful servant is the one who says, ah, he's not coming right back now, he's coming later on and he lives riotously, he's not prepared. Matthew 25 opens up with the parable of the ten virgins that we just referenced. Again, the aspect that there's, there, that, that there's only a certain amount of time and then time runs out. And then you're going to have to face the consequences of what you've done. And the end of Matthew 25 is the sheeps and the goats. A clear indication of the judgment in the New Testament can't be found in the aspect of the sheeps and the goats and the coming of the Son of Man. So this parable fits right into that context of the aspect of accountability. And we look at the elements of the story, it's not hard for us to understand, and certainly we, I think we probably uh, are able to put these together without me even mentioning them, that the Jesus is the master, he's the one who will come as judge, and his, the connection with him being the judge is probably the clearest connection to Jesus as the person of the parable, that Jesus is the one who will come to judge all nations. There are several passages that point that out. It's part of the authority that Jesus receives, that he receives the authority to come back, in which he will, through this man, as Peter says, through one man he will judge all the world. The God will provide for that. Uh, he's also the one who provides, for the, uh, who provides the gifts and the graciousness that's involved as well. The servants would be us. We're the stewards. We don't own anything. And yet, because God has provided for us abilities and resources, uh, we are obligated to follow him and certainly to do what he would have us to do. We are accountable to him. 
Uh, as we mentioned, the, cal- the t- talents probably represent, I think, do represent opportunities, uh, resources, what God provides for us, and there are a, a number of ways which we can make application of these things uh, on a personal level as to what God has provided. But what we recognize from the parable and from other places like Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians uh, is that not everybody receives the same talents. Not everybody receives the same abilities. Um, and therefore the responsibilities differ as well. Uh, he provides and judges accordingly. Isn't that thrilling to know? That God's not going to hold us accountable uh, at, for a higher responsibility if we don't have the ability or the resources to do it. Uh, so there's the positive side of that. And certainly that was part of, I think, what we see in the man who at the end is called a, a lazy and unprofitable servant. That was one thing that he did not recognize about God that you and I can learn from this parable. But what we recognize is that there is, there is a judgment to come and the accounting in is that judgment to come, uh, no doubt transferring even to the aspect of uh, the second coming that we yet await for. I believe as we said about the prophet about the men is, the parable about the men is, is there may be as well an application to the original audience about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in the nation of Israel because just as in that parable Jesus was saying this is what the kingdom is all about, that God is bringing the kingdom into being and you are not using the resources uh, to, to follow God in connection with that and that those who disbelieved about who Jesus was would be found to be wanting and be brought under judgment and the nation of Israel would be judged as a result of that. But we tend to not make that particular connection as clearly as we try to make connection to ourselves, and I think that's rightfully so. But there are talents that are utilized. He received five talents, came and brought five other talents, and said, Lord, you delivered me five talents, look, I gained five more talents. His Lord said, well done, good and faithful servant, you were faithful over a few things, I will make you ruler over many things. Enter in the joy of your Lord. And then that same scenario is repeated again. The fellow who received two talents had two more talents to give back to God, uh, to the Lord. And he says here, uh, you have done well. Uh, Enter into the joy of the Lord. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. So the first two servants double their amounts. They're eager to tell of their efforts and to make known to the Lord what they had done. The term look would present that in the text. That they say, look Lord what we have done. They're not trying to hide it. Now, so that's, that, that's not the aspect of an arrogant pride, but the idea here that God had given them a responsibility and they found joy and fulfillment in, in being able to accomplish and use the abilities God had given them. When we compare that with the guy at the end, he's not very happy about things. But that might tell us something, that if we actually do use what God gives us and we're able to take those resources through the capability God gives us, put them into action and do something for God, we're not going to be unhappy about that. Uh, we are going to be joyous over that. And that's what ultimately is placed within the context of the reward that these fellows get, is that enter into the joy of the Lord. You're a part of this. Now, there's some discussion about what the joy of the Lord is, whether it's the joy the Lord gives or it's the joy the Lord is experiencing Himself. And I don't know that from the text, at least, I don't know that I can figure that out from necessarily the grammar. I think it could go both ways. But there are other times when Jesus uses that terminology when it seems to point to this aspect that the Lord himself is joyous and that what's being presented here is what you have done has made me happy. What you have done has brought joy to the Lord. It has pleased him and you then share in that joy, which is a thrilling thought to us, the aspect that we would have the ability to share in the joy of the Lord. Knowing that the way that we're able to share in the joy that the Lord has, the comprehensive joy over everything that's good, is to use what God has given us. 
We don't create that joy for God through using our meager talents. But He offers the opportunity for us to share in His joy through the use of our talents. And so the one-talent servant, uh, uh, the the five and the two-talent servant then, uh, you see, find this this great reward. Now, we, we can stop here and recognize as we think about what this responsibility of the steward is, that this parable certainly teaches this aspect of reward and judgment as a po- uh, based upon what a person actually does. You know, there's a whole religious uh, arena out there uh, and philosophy uh, that denounces that very idea. In fact, it's anathema to them to, to believe or to think that the Bible teaches that I, God's going to actually reward me based upon what I do or punish me based on what I do not do. And yet this parable is nonsensical. If God does not require obedience in order to be saved, if He doesn't expect me to do something in order to receive the reward, there's no way for me to understand in, any, in, in some lesser way what this reward is and what the joy of the Lord is and what, the, what, what provided for the person who does something, especially when I compare it to the, what the person is given who doesn't do anything. That's outer darkness. That's the aspect of being banished from the presence of the Lord. That's not some, you see, lesser thing that He's going to make my life harder if I don't do what He wants me to do or my life's going to be tougher. What the parable presents, and I don't believe Jesus mixes metaphors here, He's not making it difficult for us to understand, is that the person who does not use the resources that He gives faces damnation before God and eternal punishment. And Jesus uses the same language in this parable as he does in other parables to describe it exactly that way. So we have to recognize this aspect of reward and living for the purpose of reward is not something that's alien from the Scriptures. Now, it doesn't teach that we earn it. These fellows didn't earn anything, and certainly the Lord gives them more than they earn. But the aspect here is that reward is important and that a person must obey the commandments in order to be a faithful steward. The other part of that is that this last guy, and that is the talents that are hidden. The fellow who's given one talent said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. The one talent servant hid his money. And again, that's a major element of the story, I believe, is this aspect that he hid his money. Uh, He was... Uh, afraid, and it says that it says that in the in the very text, uh, we might be somewhat shocked at the type of punishment that he gives, and we'll mention that here, uh, the harsh punishment that he gives. But there's something to be said about what the parable teaches in this interaction, because what the one talent man says to Jesus reveals motivation that may very well be applicable to us. We're going to put ourselves in this parable. Uh, you know, I think we have to be honest. Where do we fit? Are we five talent? Are we two talent? Are we one talent? Where are we in this parable? Well, one way to determine is not necessarily to look and see well, how many talents God has given me. That's not an inappropriate thing to do. I certainly have to, you know, look and see what resources God has provided me to use. But another way to see this is to see how I think about this use of those talents. If I'm thinking like the one talent man, if I would make the excuses that he makes, then maybe that's who I am. Maybe that's how it's supposed to be related to them. But notice what he does. He blames the master, in a sense. Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown. He, he views the Lord as, a, as demanding too much. 
as providing as being unfair to him, uh, dealing unjustly with his servants. You reap where you don't sow. You take things that don't belong to you, and you execute judgment that's unjust. Now, God's not that way at all. And so I, I would suggest to you that as I interpret this, that if, if Jesus is the master, then this man has a false perception of who Jesus is. Make that connection. And that's not, it's not a part of the story to try to make this man, uh, you see, the arbiter of who Jesus is and then settle with that. This servant is unprofitable because he doesn't understand the nature of the master that he serves. God is a God of mercy and a God of love. But the question comes to mind, why would the master, why would this servant come to that conclusion? Is there anything in the story that would tell us why this fellow would say, you're, you're unfair, you're unjust. I don't understand why you would tell me that. Why, why you would say that. Well, again, the text doesn't tell us. But, I, but I, when I look at this, I consider this. For what happened in the story is that this is the man who was given the least as opposed to the others that were given more. So if this was happening where others, where he could see what was given to others, and I would, I would think that I would probably surprise, surmise that that's what it took place because he gathered them all together. The master had not given this man as much as he'd given the other. Did that seem unfair? If someone gives somebody this much and then gives you a little bit, just a little bit, what's the first thing that come to your mind? Well, that's not fair. Look what he got. I didn't get that. And so the, the first inclination might be, to blame the person who's giving and say, well, that person's not really just. And that if based on my assessment that that person's just, can I erase my responsibility to serve him? If he's not being right, do I have to be right? If he's not being fair, do I have to be fair? And so he says that this man, that, that this master has, you see, reaping where he doesn't sow, he's unfair. And so he assumes from that that he's not obligated. And maybe he doesn't feel that he's, he should be as obligated as much as the other person. But he may very well have assumed that God was, that the master was holding him to that same obligation. That, he's, that he wants him to be as obligated as the person that he gave five talents to. And that would appear to be harsh and unfair. It would be correct. But if he believed that, it would appear to be harsh and unfair. Now this aspect of unfairness, I think is an element of the story. Unfairness and the assessment of unfairness is one of the characteristics of a proud heart. When we are thinking about ourselves and we're focused on ourselves, and one of the first things we do is begin to assess whether or not something is fair in terms of how a person's dealing with us. And as the servant, you see, is thinking about himself, maybe he's thinking about what he's going to get out of all of this or how he's being treated in all of this, he reacts to this aspect of unfairness and he makes an assessment about his match. Now, I mentioned before... Sometimes i got to think about how I feel because that may tell me whether I'm more, somewhat like this man. How do I react when I see others that have more? How do I react when I see other individuals that have more ability? You know, I wish I could do that. I sometimes, I, you know, there are sometimes maybe that are more uh, applicable to different people. There certainly are more applicable to different people. When I see somebody that has musical talent, and there are a lot of my family that have musical talent, I, and I realize that this is something that uh, they didn't necessarily learn to do, though maybe they're better at it because they went to school and they studied it. But when I was when I was in middle school, I took voice lessons. That's hard to believe, isn't it? I took voice lessons. I learned to read music. It didn't help. It was, it was a waste of money. I don't think it cost very much, but it was a waste of time. Why? Because I don't have any ability. I don't have any talent. Uh, and I see people like Ed and Charles who stand up and lead singing and, and they're so talented and uh, it's just you think why did they why did they get that ability and I did not that's just not fair that they have that ability and I don't have it and you see that's part of this aspect sometimes of how we assess things and that that 
almost natural inclination can be camouflaged as discouragement. That could cause me to be discouraged. Well, I can't do that, so I can't do anything. Or to feel sorry for myself. Poor me. I'm really downtrodden and I'm mistreated because I don't have this. And we're tempted to hide our talent, to take what we do have and to hide it in the earth because we can't do what this person can do. So we do nothing. Now, what we have to recognize about that, and one thing I think is important to be recognized, is that all of that's fueled by pride. The reason that happens in our life is because we're focused on ourselves. And if we were focused on what the Master wanted us to do, if we were focused on the job, if we were like that person we talked about this morning, who no matter what happened, he wanted to please his Master about everything else, if we were godly people, then that might not happen. But the servant's inaccuracy, his false assessment, is not really the major fault. The major fault is that led him to do nothing. And so that's a part of this. He used fear as an excuse to do nothing. I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Fear is the enemy of faith. It's not wrong to be afraid. Sometimes God commands us to not be afraid in the aspect of putting our faith forward. But faith disrupts the aspect of, what, of who we should be when it causes us to be idle and do nothing or maybe to run uh, and as this man does to hide what God has given us. And so we think about the others. Maybe the other guys felt fear too. Maybe they felt enormous responsibility. But they didn't hide their talent. He seeks to appease the Lord by returning what he had been given. So he's seeking some kind of fairness, isn't he? He's focused on that. This is not fair, but I'm going to be, I'm going to be the fair one here. I'm going to give you back what you gave to me. I'm not going to take it from you. But this is an impotent excuse. It's in contradiction to the commandment that was given. It denies the very aspect of stewardship that's a vital part of this particular parable and certainly our responsibility towards God. He was under a charge. So are you and I. If we think that we can get to a position, any position at any time in our life, when we have paid what we owe to God or that we've given back to God what, we, what, what He gave to us and the score is even, you see, we have a very misguided image of what salvation is all about. Third, or, or, uh, fourthly, I think, it says in the text that he was lazy. Verse 26. The Master says, You wicked and lazy servant. He said, You could have simply put money in the bank and earned interest. You could have just done that. Now, the idea here, again, as I look at the parable, is that what the Master is focusing on, what Jesus is teaching here, is this, this aspect of who you're thinking about. Not whether or not he could get by easier by just putting money in the bank. He wasn't giving him a shortcut to his responsibility. But I think he was pointing this out to this gentleman to show that you weren't thinking about me at any time in this because if you had been, the least you could have done was put it in the bank. But you were simply thinking about yourself. And so no excuse could hide his indolence. Nothing could be done at this point, you see, to excuse him. Well, we read... You look at the punishment, and again, we mention this again because it shocks us. Two things happen. One, he is cast into outer darkness. He is put in a position where he no longer can be in a relationship with the Master. He is away as possible as far as he can get from the blessings of the Master. And he, as well, in connection with that, he is cast out into outer darkness and his talent is taken away. The ability, the resource... The blessing God had given him originally was removed from him. There are a couple of times when Jesus said, if you don't use it, you'll lose it. 
that to him that has and uses it, more will be given. To him that doesn't use what he has, will be taken away. Now, there's an element about the story that, that's not in the text that I, that I think has always impressed me about this aspect of the two, first two guys, the number five, the five talent, the two talent guy. It says there, as it does in the other parable as well, I think, that the fellow who did not use it, the talent was taken away from him and given to the fellow who had ten talents, so he ends up with eleven. What's he going to do with that? Now, is the implication of the parable that, it, that, that, that the master enriches him or that the master gives him more responsibility? Because the first time he gave him money, it didn't, he wasn't to put it in the bank. That would have been wrong. He was to take it out and use it. So the second time he gets money, what's he supposed to do? You see, God gives me abilities, and I use those abilities, and I get very, feeling very good about myself. Boy, I can do that pretty good. I can do that better than anybody around me. This is pretty good. And so God gives me more. And I say, wait, wait a minute, that's not fair. Or the idea that what he gives me and blessing me in that is somehow on the purpose to enrich me rather than for me to actually use that to a greater extent. And sometimes that comes in the aspect of suffering and menial tasks that we fail to see as responsibilities. But all that's in the aspect of application. A couple of applications I want to make before we close here. What does it mean to see this par- to understand this parable? One is everything we have comes from God. Nothing we have of our own. We are stewards and all of our resources and all of our abilities and all of our physical blessings. There are no exemptions. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, Romans chapter 14 and verse 10, based upon the fact that He is the one who has given our resources. God grants these talents according to our ability to use them. We don't all have the same responsibility because we don't, we've not been given all the same gifts. And yet, even the roles that are presented within the family relationship and within the church would be based upon this aspect of capabilities and abilities and responsibilities. And in the end, the number of talents will not matter. What will matter is how faithfully we use those talents. You know, one phrase that bears that out to me is this phrase that Paul uses over and over again. He used the phrase, the grace given. The grace that was given. That's a good concordance search sometimes. Just go through and see the times in which that particular phrase is used by the Apostle Paul. He used, many times, he used that phrase to refer to himself. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, Romans chapter 12, talking about his apostleship, he became apostle by the grace of God. According to grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I've laid a foundation, 1 Corinthians 3 verse 10, that I'm preaching the gospel even in areas where it's never been planted before because God's given me grace. I worked harder than any other of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10. God had entrusted Paul with certain unique abilities. Even in describing his suffering in that infamous thorn in the flesh, Paul described it as a grace that was given. This is something that God's provided for me. I've got to use this because that's what it's for. He used that very same phrase to describe us. In Romans chapter 12, having spiritual gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And so that phrase is connected to the aspect of responsibility. It's a grace that's given for the purpose to be used. He goes on to say, in proportion to our faith. In Ephesians chapter 4, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. He takes salvation itself and the blessings of salvation and puts it in the same framework as the parable of the talents. In other places where he talks about responsibility. And so we are to serve God and speak the words of God as God has provided. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. 
Everything should be done with a view towards God's judgment. This is coming a day of accountability. How many times we think about that day of reckoning? How often do we contemplate the coming of Jesus? It's easy for us to get coasting along and not think about the fact that the Lord could return today or, that there, or the very fact that the Lord will return one day. And all these things will be held accountable for. And also this aspect that all those who please God as good stewards are given the same reward. That this is not a competition among us. That the five-talent guy got the same thing that the two-talent guy got because they used what they had. And so the idea here that you do the best that you can and you're responsible for what you do is what God is reacting to in relationship to our faith. Now, He requires more of those who He gives more to. But God is not less pleased with me because I can't do as many things as the fellow who has five talents. It had to do, you see, with what He holds me responsible for and the graciousness with which God provides something for everyone who serves Him. And the one-talent man didn't fail because he was a one-talent man. He failed because he didn't use that one talent. And that's an important perspective. It takes away all these excuses. And I think that's certainly what we recognize, that there is no excuse in the context of this parable. There is no excuse for doing nothing. And that's what he did. He did nothing. If you do nothing with what God has given you, what will you say to the Lord on the last day? What will you say to the Lord on that day of judgment? Will you be able to convince him? Will I be able to convince him I was too busy? That I had too many other things on my plate? That the suffering was too great? That there were people that weren't encouraging me around me? That I had to do it alone? Or whatever excuse I could come up with that I was afraid? Will that be good enough to excuse not assembling together with the saints? Not praying? Not visiting the sick? Not teaching the Bible to others? Not serving the congregation? Even in the seemingly least significant way? There is no excuse for doing nothing. And I think about that in the context of congregational activity. How many people are there in a congregation who do nothing but assemble? And maybe they don't do that very often. But in terms of what takes place in their Christian life, there's nothing else. And if that's true about you or about me, where do I fit into this parable? Is there some way I could convince myself that I'm the five-talent or the two-talent guy or that God's going to be pleased with me or do I recognize that if the five-talent guy did nothing, he would meet the same reward as the one-talent guy who did nothing. And it has to do with responsibility. God has entrusted me with great grace, with great gifts. He's given us the ability to share in the mission that before him of teaching the lost the gospel of Jesus Christ, of serving one another, of learning the value of being like Christ, the self-sacrifice of His life being transferred to mine. Even the idea that Paul says that he would bear on his body the marks of Jesus Christ. Peter says it's a privilege to suffer for Christ. It's also a responsibility because it's grace. There is a reward for us if we act responsibly, if we do something, if we're active in the service of God. Not because we're going to work off our salvation or obligate God in some way, to give us what he's going to give us, but because God promises it. And this parable teaches that. And certainly we need to be impressed by that. Thank you for your attention. I hope maybe something we talked about in connection with this parable help us not only to better understand it, but also to more effectively see our responsibility.